0: Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over your word today, and I thank you, Lord, that you give us victory when we are under attack from our enemy. And Lord, use us today. Use your word today. Use me today to communicate the grace of God to defeat our spiritual enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, if you know me at all, you know I'm very uncomfortable to have like handwritten notes. This is what God gave me this morning at 5.30 a.m. And so um, uh, just bear with me because this is a whole new thing. And I don't know where it's going to end up, but but God has given us a word for today. And I'm excited to preach it. I want to preach along these lines, an unusual battle, an unusual battle. This story in Exodus chapter 17 says that as Israel is making their way through the wilderness, an enemy comes against them, an enemy, a king named Amalek and his people called the Amalekites, and they come against Israel in battle. Now, you have to remember, Israel was just freed from slavery just a few days ago. These are not soldiers. These are bricklayers and craftsmen. These are women and children. They are not ready and prepared to fight a battle against Amalek. Now, I did some research just quickly this morning, and the uh, Amalek uh, was known, and the Amalekites were known, as a bloodthirsty enemy. They were called a bloodthirsty enemy. People just knew they were they were they they engaged in total warfare. They they wanted to wipe their enemies off the planet. They had a thirst for warfare and a thirst for blood. And they were came against Israel in what seemed to be an unprovoked attack. Israel is just minding their own business. They're just trying to get to the land that God had promised them. They are newly freed slaves. They, they ha- don't really have any enemies except the enemy that was already drowned behind them in the Red Sea. But for some reason, King Amalek and the Amalekites, these bloodthirsty, warfaring people, came against Israel in an unprovoked attack. Now, I want to suggest to you that they only attacked Israel because Israel was moving forward. Sometimes the enemy comes and attacks God's people when the enemy sees that God's people are actually making forward momentum. If you're just standing still or going backwards, the enemy's not going to bother you. But if you start claiming new territory and you start going further into God's promises for your life and you start making positive momentum in your walk with God and you start making positive momentum in your pursuit of holiness and you start making forward motion in your in your journey of faith, the enemy will attack. And it's important to notice that at the beginning of Exodus chapter 17 was the miracle where Moses struck the rock and water flowed. The enemy did not come to attack the people of God until the water started flowing until the water started bubbling up and until there was uh, there was uh, sustenance and there was water and there was something to quench their thirst in the desert dry arid desert that's when the enemy came when God started moving and providing for his people that's when the enemy came to attack he came to attack immediately after the water started to flow can i tell you that I think that some of the things that some families and our church are facing right now are in exact parallel to what happened in Exodus chapter 17. Because there are people in our church just over the last three or four months that have been growing so much spiritually. There have been people that have recently been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There have been people that are going deeper in the Word of God. There have been people that are pursuing the, the spiritual fullness of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so water has begun to flow in your house and the Spirit has begun to move in your house and God has begun to do extraordinary things in you and your family and the enemy saw the water flowing so the enemy came after you to steal your miracle. The enemy will attack your momentum and try to steal what God is doing in your life, try to set you back in your progress, because he knows if you can move forward, you are unstoppable. And so the enemy comes after your miracle. Now, another thing that I learned about him Amalek this morning at uh, about 6 a.m. this morning is that Amalek was a grandson of the man named Esau in Genesis. You say, what's that mean? What's the big deal there? That's because Amalek is actually a cousin of the people of Israel. If you remember, there was father Abraham and he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name became Israel. And then Jacob's family ended up in Egypt. And then 400 years later, we learned that that the Israelites were freed from Egypt. Well the other side of the family tree came through Esau and Amalek was a grandson of of Esau. And so there's actually a family feud happening here. Isn't that just like the enemy to bring a family feud in right when things are going good and right when God is starting to move in your life, something comes up in the family, some problem comes up. They're all descendants of Abraham. They all have the same spiritual DNA, but for some reason they're fighting against one another. An attack from somewhere that should be family and should be friendly comes against you. It's an unusual attack. It's an unprovoked, attack. It's something that you didn't see coming. It's something that you didn't think they were really your enemy. You thought they would be your friend, but all of a sudden there's a spiritual attack against you from a friendly place, from a place that ought to be familial to you. And this unprovoked attack against the people of Israel turns into an unusual battle, an unusual battle. Why is it an unusual battle? One, number one, because it was won in an unusual way. We see that, that the way they won the battle is not the way that we would expect somebody to win the battle. It was also an unusual battle because it showed the enemy Amalekites that the people of God were an unusual people following an unusual God and winning unusual victories. See, all that the people in that region at the time knew were these gods, and you've heard me preach about it. There's stones they their images of wood, and you would go and make offerings to them and hope that they would hear you and hope that they would do something on your behalf, but those gods never answered. Those gods never talked back. Those gods never showed up in fire. Those gods never showed up with the cloud. Those gods never drowned Pharaoh's army. Those gods never did anything. And all of a sudden, this band of misfits coming out of Egypt, they used to be slaves. They don't have any training. They don't have any military uh, uh, experience at all. They move forward and the world sees that these are an unusual people and they're serving an unusual God because this one actually speaks and this one actually has power and this one actually can do something and they're winning unusual victories that day the enemy found out that God's people fight differently amen amen just a couple of things to point out to you number one God's people fight from an unusual perspective God's people fight from an unusual perspective. Look at verses 9 and 10. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight the enemy. Tomorrow I will go up the hill with the staff of God in my hand. That's the same staff that when he threw it down on the ground before Pharaoh, it turned into a snake. That's the same staff that when he held it over the Red Sea, the waters parted and they went through on dry land. That's the same staff that when he was, when they were thirsty, he took that staff and he struck the rock and water Began to flow, and he says, "I'm going to take this staff that represents God's power, that represents the miracle-working power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to go up to the top of the hill, and you fight down below." And it says, "So Joshua did as Moses told him." Let's stop right there. It's a good idea to do what your pastor tells you to do when you're in a fight, when you're in a when you're in a battle. You do what the leader tells you. Do what the Spirit leads you to do. Be obedient in the time of battle, and watch God do the miraculous. So Joshua did as Moses told him and he picked out men and they went to fight. They were outnumbered. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't have any experience. But he said, if all I've got is just a little slingshot, if all I've got is a little peace shooter, I'm going to go against this enemy because God has sent me and God has promised victory. So Moses goes up to the top of the hill with Aaron and Hur and they went up to the top and that hill represents a, a place of higher ground. That hill represents a place of getting a different perspective. Oftentimes in Scripture, you'll hear God tell people, come up higher, come to the mountain and meet with me. Come up to the mountain and pray. You even see Jesus. He'll go up to the mountainside and spend time in prayer. The mountain represents a place where you see things from a different vantage point. You see things from a different perspective. You start to see things not from your point of view, but from God's point of view. If you leave here today and you go get you some lunch, up at the lodge at Mount Magazine. The valley below you is going to look a lot different from up there than it does from down here. Amen? It gives you a different perspective on what you're seeing in life. God's people fight from a different perspective. We don't see the world in the natural. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. We see the fight the way God sees the fight. I was talking to someone in our church this week that's going through a battle, and I said, this looks like one thing, but it's actually, actually another thing this is not a medical attack this is a spiritual attack this is an attack on you and your growth and your belief and your focus what you see on the front lines is different than what god sees up on the mountain and god sees something about to happen that's going to shake the foundations the hill it represents a place of prayer it represents a place of intercession we see all through scripture and where moses would go up to the mountain to pray And Jesus would go up to the mountain to pray. And when they prayed, things changed and things happened. We have a different perspective because we've been on the mountain with God. And you find out this is no ordinary battle. This is not just some run-of-the-mill battle. You can't look at it through ordinary eyes because this is unusual. And if you're going to win an unusual battle, you're going to need an unusual perspective. And when you're in the heat of the battle, if you'll get to the hilltop, if you'll get to the place of prayer and intercession, if you can get out of the muck of the battle and get to that place of glory where God is and get in the cloud and get in the fire where God is going to speak to you and give you strategy and give you insight and build your faith and strengthen your inner man if you'll get up there to the place of prayer and intercession and meet with God you'll see that the battle is not what you thought it was and that actually God has a plan in all of it what I love about this is that Moses did not go up the hill alone Moses did not most of the time when you read in scripture about Moses going up the mountain to spend time with God and pray most of the time he's by himself But this was a season in particular where Moses said, I can't believe God on my own for this victory. I can't do this by myself. I need somebody to go with me because sometimes, can I just be real for a second? I don't feel like praying in the middle of the battle. I don't feel like interceding. I don't feel like having faith. I would like to sit home and sit in my little pity party and pout and complain and say, I just can't stand the way things are going. And God, if you would just fix this. And there is no faith in me sometimes to believe for the fight that's in front of me. That's why you need the church. That's why you need people beside you that go up the mountain with you and when you don't feel like praying they pray for you when you don't feel like praying they make you pray and they tell you you're going to pray whether you want to pray or not you want to we're going to worship whether you want to worship or not if you won't lift your hands I'll pick them up for you and I'll put your hands up because as for us in our house we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to believe God and we're going to have faith for what God's going to do and so Moses didn't go up alone he took a church with him he took some brothers with him to lift him up in prayer and to to. Stand with them in the gap, and I like it. Aaron is his biological brother. Aaron is is the man that was uh, was brought that Moses that God gave Moses to be the spokesperson. So God would get the the message from, or Moses would get the message from God in the tent, then he'd go tell Aaron, and then Aaron would go tell the people. And they developed this relationship of leading together and and being a mouthpiece for one another. So he had his biological brother there. You need a brother. You need a sister. You need somebody that is with you and, and will stick with you through thick or thin, through whatever battle. But her was not his brother. Her wasn't even his same age. In fact, it says or it, it's in believed uh, in Jewish tradition that her was a younger man and that actually her's name means son. And so there was something like a spiritual son relationship where Moses was pouring into her and Moses was was uh, was mentoring her and was making sure that that her was growing up to know the Lord. And and the, so there was a brother, but also there was someone that he was pulling up with them and saying, hey, let me show you how we pray at the mountaintop. Let me show you how we win battles. I'm going to take you up there, and I'm going to show you how to lead. I'm going to show you how to pray through. I'm going to show you how to believe God for victory. And you have to have both. If you're always just talking to someone on your level, but you're never pouring into the next generation, your generation might make it through. But what will they have learned about how to pray and how to believe God and how to do uh, intercede and, and travail at the altar and pray for breakthrough? You got to bring somebody younger with you up to the mountain too, and teach them how to pray and. Teach them how to walk and teach them how to how to pursue God and believe God in faith. You've got to have both. You say, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what my place is. I don't know what my ministry is in church. I can tell you what it is. I don't have to pray about it. You don't have to pray about it. You're called to raise up other disciples. You're called to what you have received from God to pass it on to the next generation. This place ought to be the fullest it ever is on Wednesday nights because people say, you know what? I've had an experience with God and I'm going to make sure that every young person in my community has an experience with God. It's more important to come then than it is to come this morning. Why? Because the next next generation needs somebody to say, hey, let's go up to the mountain together and let's watch God win some battles for us. Let me show you how we do it. And then when I get tired and when I'm old and frail and I don't have any more strength to give, then that younger person can help hold up my hands and bolster me in faith. And that's how you know you've really discipled some person when you're no longer pouring into them, but they're pouring into you and they're helping you fight the battle on your behalf because you've taught them how to pray and you've taught them how to believe. It's an unusual battle, and God's people fight from an unusual perspective. Number two, God's people fight with unusual weapons. God's people fight with unusual weapons. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. and Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. When Moses holds up his hands, they start to move forward in advance and they start to get the victory. I wonder sometimes, well, did Moses test it? You know, was he sitting up there like, let's see what happens and put my hand down. Let's see what happens when I put my hand up. And, oh, I'm gonna keep my hand up. You know, I wonder if he's trying to figure that out. That's how my brain works sometimes, you know. But he he started to see. And you know, I, I kind of wonder if Moses, when he was up there and he had his hands up, I just wonder maybe he wasn't looking down at the battle. I just think maybe he was just up there and he was just talking to God. You know, the Bible says that. Moses was a friend of God, that that he met God face to face, that he communed with God face to face in an unusual way, and that they had this dynamic, intimate relationship. And it was from that intimate relationship that Moses received the power to lead people and see victory in battle. But it says that as he was worshiping God and and magnifying God and praying to God on behalf of the people that his arms grew tired, and so Aaron and her, the church there with them, the brother and the son, they were there with them and they saw they saw their spiritual leader getting tired and they said, we've got to find a way because we know that when he holds his hands up where if he can keep his hands up, we'll win this battle. So they bring him a rock to sit on. How I many knows you need to put yourself on the solid rock? Amen. They give him a solid rock to sit on. They give him a foundation to sit on. And the word of God is our solid rock. Jesus is our solid rock. We stand on the solid rock of who Jesus is and what his word says. And we can we can sit ourselves on the solid rock of who Christ is. And the church can come alongside us and help us to pray and lift us up when we feel weak and build us up when we feel like we can't make it. And they held their hands up. And it's important to notice that swords and spears did not win this battle. They were outnumbered, they were outflanked, they were outresourced, they had no experience. On their own, they could not win. How do you know that, Pastor? Because if when Moses stopped praying, they stopped winning. It was only through Moses' intercession up on the mountain with unusual spiritual weapons as he began to intercede and pray for the people that they began to win. What were those unusual weapons? Number one is prayer. I just felt like the Lord said this morning, remember this word, P-U-S-H, push. Pray until something happens. You keep praying, until you start see. The battle being won. You keep praying until it's over. You don't just pray one time. You pray until you get breakthrough. You don't just pray until you get tired. You pray until you see breakthrough. You don't just pray until your buddies get tired of you praying. You pray until you get breakthrough. You say, well, the church is almost over and people are getting out and I need to get up from this altar and quit praying. No, you don't. If you haven't gotten breakthrough yet, you stay there all you want to. You get on your face before God. You cover that altar. Altar with tears and snot and you make sure that you get with God and you have do business with God and you don't get up until the battle has been won until the the yoke is broken until the weight has been lifted learn how to pray until something happens their weapons was prayer another weapon that's uh, those hands lifted up that's a symbol of worship of worship let me tell you something. What we were doing here just a few minutes ago, well, we, were, we were lifting our hands and we were shouting and people were praying in the Spirit. People were praising God in their prayer language and people were shouting hallelujah and, and they were playing instruments and Pastor Katie was singing and, and, we were just all, and I was reading the Scripture and we were worshiping. We were talking about the elders and the throne and falling uh, before God on the throne. All of that was worship. And let me tell you, in that kind of atmosphere, pushes back darkness. The enemy does cannot stand to stay in that kind of atmosphere. He cannot stand to stay around when people are praising God. He does not like to hear you praise God. When the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee. How do you resist the devil? Start praising God. Start opening your mouth. Start using your mouth. The Bible says power of life and death lies in your tongue. You start using your tongue to speak the name of Jesus instead of speaking all the curses of the situation around you. And as you begin to worship and magnify Jesus, glory comes in. And you join in with those angels and those elders as they get around the throne. And there is no darkness in that throne room. And there is no place for the enemy in that throne room. When you worship, you push back the darkness of the enemy. God or the enemy hates to hear you praise God. He can't even stand it. It's like nails on a chalkboard to him. He's got to get out. You don't believe it? I have seen with my own eyes people who have been possessed with unclean spirits and demonic spirits and they show up in a church service or they show up in a in a time of worship and they begin to worship they begin to we began to worship and that person began to manifest demonic voices and and start to just say the most foulest disgusting horrible things because the enemy is going to try to fight back against the worship that's going on in the atmosphere and things will begin to manifest but listen the longer you worship and the longer you pray and the more you create an atmosphere of faith, eventually that demonic spirit has to go because he will not stay where God is glorified. You say, I need victory over the enemy. How's your worship life? Not just in here either. If you're just doing it one day a week, one hour a week, you're going to lose. That's that. That's you taking your arm. Well, I'll keep my arms up while I'm in church. Now, when I walk out the door, I put my arm back down and guess what? The enemy starts to gain ground. But if you make worship not an activity but an attitude and a lifestyle and you create a home where it's a worshipful home and you create a car where it's a worshipful car and you create a workplace where it's a worshipful workplace, guess what? The enemy can't win because your worship brings light into the room and light always wins over darkness. Hallelujah. Another weapon. I won't get many amens on this one, but another weapon. Unity. Unity. There was was a unity among the people of God in fighting the enemy. Look what it said. It says, Moses gave the orders. He said, I've heard from God. Joshua, you go get some men and y'all go fight. Well, why do I have to go fight, Moses? Why can't you go fight? How come Aaron doesn't have to fight? Her's a young man. Why isn't he down there fighting? Don't know. God said, You go pick some men to fight. You do your job. You stay in your lane. You do what you're supposed to do. We'll do what we're supposed to do. And if you do that, Joshua, you will win. They were in unity. They were, Joshua did what he was supposed to do. He understood his place in the kingdom. He understood his place in the ministry. The people, the men that were fighting did what they were supposed to do. They understood their place in the kingdom. They understood their place in the ministry. Moses did what he was supposed to do. He understood his place in the kingdom. He understood his place in ministry. Aaron and her, they didn't take the spotlight. Aaron didn't say, well I'll carry the staff for you Moses or or I'll pray for you. No, they understood where their place was and they went alongside. And then when they saw that their brother was in trouble and that he couldn't hold his arms up any longer, they said, "Okay, now it's our time to shine and we'll step up and we'll hold his arms up with them and we'll get beside him and we'll agree with him in prayer and we'll make sure that even if his arms are tired and feel like they're about to fall off, they're not going to drop because we're going to see battle because we're unified against a single enemy. Unity is a powerful weapon in the church. And I can tell you that one of the biggest ways that the enemy tries to defeat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to create disunity. See, unity brings an anointing that breaks the chains of the enemy. The Bible says in Psalms, it says how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil. It's an anointing that's running down the beard of Aaron. It's this powerful anointing that comes when the brothers are unified in a single purpose and a single cause. I preached to you a few weeks ago, when you get unified against a single cause, when you get unified to uh, with a single purpose, a single purpose to advance the kingdom, to push back the darkness, to expand and make Jesus famous in the world all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what color the chairs are, how bright the lights are, what time church starts. It doesn't matter who gets to preach or who gets to sing. It doesn't matter what, what I've got going on on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. It doesn't matter because we're unified with a single purpose. And if we could get unified, we would be unstoppable. Satan cannot defeat a unified church. I'll tell you this, one, that's one of the biggest things as a pastor that we have to protect is unity. Let me, can I ask you to do something next time you're in church or you're with church people and you start to hear gossip, you say, "Hey I got to stop you right there because I want to make sure our church is unstoppable and we're in unity, so I can't hear this gossip right now. Shut it down. Say we're not going to gossip. It's not, "I'm not mad at you, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you, "Hey, we're going to be unified." Next time someone comes and complains to you about, maybe it's not even about church stuff, but it's just a complaint. It's just a, it's just a sow in a seed of discord. It's just sow in seeds of negativity. Say, hey, no, we got to be unified. We just, that's important because we only have one cause. Our one cause is to expand the kingdom, to push back darkness, to make Jesus famous. That's our one cause. And if it doesn't apply to any of that, we don't need to deal with it. It's fine. Let's move forward. And then when there are times where we disagree, let's come together and say, hey, it's okay to disagree. It's all right. Because what we're disagreeing about doesn't change the mission. The mission is, let's move forward. Let's expand the kingdom. Let's push back the darkness. Let's make Jesus famous. That's the mission. And now all the other things kind of fall to the side. And if we can get unified, and if we can become get on a spirit of worship and a spirit of prayer, those three weapons at the hilltop made Israel unstoppable and undefeatable. Israel fought with unusual weapons. Look at this scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. We don't use usual weapons. For our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power for the bringing down of strongholds. If we could get these weapons of prayer and of worship and unity, and we could get those weapons in our tool belt and go into battle against the enemy with those three things, we could pull down the enemy strongholds in this community. You could pull down the enemy strongholds in your family. You could pull down the enemy strongholds in a nation because the church is unified, because the church is crying out in prayer, because the church is magnifying God in worship, and we hold our hands up and we see that the enemy gets pushed back. As we worship. I told you to get quieter on that one. Number three, God's people fight with an unusual hope. God's people fight with an unusual hope. Hope means expectation. We kind of talk about hope like, oh, I hope we'll go get ice cream after church. You know, maybe it'll happen. But a biblical definition of hope is the confident expectation that God will act. It is the confident expectation that God will act, that God will move, God will do something. Now, the people of Israel had a reason for hope. They had a reason for this unusual hope. There are two reasons, actually. Number one, they had God's previous record. He had proven himself. He had proven himself when he drowned the enemy in the sea he had proved himself when he brought water from the rock when he brought manna from heaven he had proved i am the god who can do impossible things but also they had god's future promises and that's where that's where we have to root our hope is in god's previous record and god's future promises He gave them a promise that you're going to make it to the promised land. I'm going to give you all this land. I'm going to give you back what the enemy stole from you. I'm going to give it all back. I'm going to make your borders uh, wide. And I'm going to to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And so if God gave them that promise, no matter what enemy came against them or how hard the battle got, God gave them a promise so they had to make it through. And when you say, you know what? God gave me a promise. X, whatever it is, God promised me this, whether it's a scripture that you read and you took that as a promise or whether it was a promise God gave personally to you as the Holy Spirit spoke to you, if God gives you that promise and you haven't seen it fulfilled yet, then guess what? That means that no attack can take you down because God made that promise. And so nothing can take you out. Nothing can take you down because you've got to see that promise come to pass. We just received a promise through a prophetic word during worship. And listen, whatever happens, Susan, whatever happens... Lisa, whatever happens, Jeff, whatever happens, if God gave you that promise, I don't care what hell or high water comes, I'm going to make it through because God gave me a promise and He hasn't brought it to pass yet, but my God who makes promises is a promise keeper and the one who made the promise is faithful to keep the promise so I can make it through anything because I know there's a promise waiting for me on the other side. It's an unusual hope. Look at verse 13. It says, Uh, Moses hands grew weary Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side the other on the other so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun verse 13 and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword verse 14 then the Lord said to Moses write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God says. Your enemy is my enemy. He says, I'm going to make sure that this enemy is wiped off the face of the planet. Did you know up until recently? Scholars said that this story was not true. Historians said this story was not true because there was no archaeological evidence that people named the Amalekites had ever lived. It's only been in the last couple of decades that they found little coins and little pieces of pottery and stuff and said, oh, this might be the Amalekites. God fulfilled his promise. He made sure that this enemy got wiped off the planet. He said, they came against my people. I'm going to come against them. And... What I love about God is God already given laws to the people of Israel said, if anyone wants to come and follow me and join you, they can join you. He gives an opportunity for repentance. He gives an opportunity to join and start following this unusual God who gives unusual victories. But they chose to still come against. And Israel fought the Amalekites for hundreds of years, all the way through to King David. They weren't finally defeated until King David's time. So hundreds of years they fought them because God said, I'm going to fight them generation from generation. But one of these days, you're going to win your final victory over them and they're never going to come against you again. And God gave me a word this morning and said, you might have to fight generation to generation and the enemy might be coming against you and your family. And you might be fighting the same old battle you've been fighting for for decades even. But one of these days... The enemy is going to wage his last battle against you and you're going to see the ultimate victory. Can I tell you that Satan's days are numbered? I thought I would just take you today to the end of the book for a second. Revelation chapter 20, this encouraging scripture because it tells us the end of the story. Revelation 20 verse 10, it says, And the devil... Who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, the enemy's days are numbered. One of these days, God's going to say, Enough is enough. And you have come against my people for too long, and you have deceived too many of my children, and you have destroyed too much of my creation. And I am going to make sure that you never have an opportunity again to come against my children. I'm going to make sure that you never have another opportunity to come against the next generation. I will defeat you. And he says, you're going to be devil. You're going to regret it every day for the rest of eternity. You're going to regret ever messing with my people. You're going to regret ever messing with my kingdom because you're going to find out who's really boss. You're going to find out who really wins. You're going to find out who gets the victory. And Jesus won the victory for us on the cross. And the Satan's days are numbered and God will keep fighting until that day. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning?